Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 384 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about the world of writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm your co host and CEO of the Australian Writer Centre, where you'll find courses and a wonderfully supportive writing community. This episode is a story session where we bring you the first chapter of a book that we recommend so you can sample it while you're washing the windows or walking on the beach or building Lego if you're that way inclined. And especially if you're not comfortable standing in the bookshop reading with lots of other people in the world at this stage, reading the first chapter of the book to decide whether you want to get into it or not, we've brought the bookshop to you. This week, I've chosen Letters from Berlin by Tanya Blanchard. Now, I'm particularly excited to be sharing this book with you because Tanya is one of our graduates at the Australian Writer Centre. This is her third novel. If you've listened to this podcast before, you'll know that we have interviewed her before. She's had amazing success with The Girl from Munich and Suitcase of Dreams, the first two, which have now sold more than 100,000 copies. Yes, you heard that correctly, 100,000 copies. Tanya once again draws on her own family history to tell an extraordinary tale of tragedy and courage, love and loss, and endings and new beginnings. Just so you understand a little bit more about the book, here is the blurb. Berlin, 1943. As the Allied forces edge closer, the Third Reich tightens its grip on its people. For 18-year-old Susanna Gottman, this means her adopted family, including the man she loves, Leo, are at risk. Desperate to protect her loved ones any way she can, Susie accepts the help of an influential Nazi officer, but it comes at a terrible cost. She must abandon any hope of a future with Leo and enter the frightening world of the Nazi elite. Yet, all is not lost as her new found position offers more than she could have hoped for. With critical intelligence at her fingertips, Susie seizes a dangerous opportunity to help the resistance. The decisions she makes could change the course of the war, but what will they mean for her family and her future? Inspired by letters that Tanya found while researching her first novel, Letters from Berlin, is a story about family, resilience, sacrifice and love. The story illuminates the challenges mixed-race couples and Mischling, or half-breeds, faced during German-occupied Europe and the desperate lengths family and friends went to to support and protect those they loved. The book also illustrates the fight for an estate that symbolises the dedication people will endure to preserve a family's legacy. So here is Chapter 1 of Tanya Blanchard's book, Read by Nat Newman. Letters from Berlin by Tanya Blanchard It was January 1943, and Tante Elia and I were finally alone in the parlour. We have to write that guest list if we're going to have your party in April, she said, pouring a second cup of tea from the teapot, kept hot on top of the samovar. It was a beautiful vase-shaped silver urn, with a central pipe filled with slow-burning pine cones that heated the water used to dilute the tea. The pot was intricately decorated with brilliantly coloured enamel paint, like a delicate jewelled ornament. It had been her mother's and her grandmother's before her, and reminded Tante Elia of her childhood in Russia. Drinking tea in the afternoon was a daily ritual for her, 
carrying on the tradition from her family. When I was home, I always enjoyed it with her, finding a few moments of peace in an otherwise busy day. I don't want a big party, I said, mortified and excited at the same time. I had been away on my national service when I turned 18, so Tante Elia had insisted on celebrating my 19th birthday in style. Despite the news filtering back about our army's terrible losses in Stalingrad on the Eastern Front, and talk that the war was not going well for Germany. It was now grinding into its fourth year, and all hope of a quick war had been lost. Even the relentless Nazi propaganda machine couldn't paper over the reality of Germans living daily with stiff rationing, continuous bombings, the loss of their menfolk, and the bone-deep fear that the war would never end. It didn't feel right to be lavish, and yet it was exciting to be planning my first grown-up party. Don't be silly, Mishka. We have to make the most of what we have and enjoy the company of those we love. None of us knows what tomorrow will bring. Water flowed into the china cup from the tap on the bottom of the samovar, tempering the strength of the dark brew, and Tante Elia placed a sugar lump on my teaspoon before handing me the delicate cup and saucer. She was indulging me, with Uncle George's contacts, we could still get luxuries like tea and sugar, but Elia ensured we used them sparingly. Besides, you're the only girl I have, and I want to spoil you a little. She reached across the table and grasped my hand, her skin still warm from the teacup. Your mother would have done the same for you. My mother. The last memory I had of her was lying in a field of wildflowers, red poppies and blue cornflowers the colour of her eyes, vibrant against her long golden hair. She was laughing at my father, chasing after my brother and me as we played hide-and-seek. Then I was beside her, and my father was tickling my cheek with soft stalks of grass. We'd spent much of the summer in East Prussia, at our property in Marienwerder. We lived in Berlin, where my father had a thriving architectural firm, but we travelled to Marienwerder whenever we could. A little while later, I was lulled to sleep by the sound of the cars we travelled back to Berlin that night, only to wake to screeching tyres, a loud bang, and a feeling of weightlessness. There was nothing after that, until I woke up in hospital, to learn that my family was dead taken from me in those few moments after our car had hit a lone deer on the dark road. At the age of seven, I inherited everything, a more than tidy sum of money, and the property that had been in my mother's family for generations. As my mother's parents had died long ago, and her brothers during the Great War, I was all that was left. But for a long time after, I'd wished that they'd taken me with them. Come, she wouldn't want you to be sad, whispered Tante Elia, her dark, expressive eyes misty. I knew she missed my mother terribly too. They'd been as close as sisters since Elia had arrived in Berlin as a young girl, having just lost her mother herself. Now she kissed my forehead and smoothed the long blonde hair from my face, her hands soft against my skin. Your parents would be so proud of you. All I could do was nod, 
quickly gazing out the large window that overlooked the garden, blanketed in white after the heavy snowfall the day before. The pale rays of afternoon sunshine sparkled on the icy branches of the trees, making me smile. It reminded me that even in the darkest moments, there was joy and hope to find. The death of my parents and brother had brought me my new family, and I loved them fiercely. Tante Elia pushed a few sheets of writing paper across the table to me, with a fountain pen on top. Think about who you want on your list while I jot down a few ideas for the menu, then we can go through them together. I stared at the blank page while I sipped my tea through the sugar cube. My best friend Marika was the top of my list, and I thought long and hard about which of my school and university friends I wanted to invite. I was in my very first semester at the Friedrich Wilhelm University in Berlin, studying history, languages and literature, and had made friends quickly with other students who lived on campus with me during the week. It was much like boarding school, which I had attended since I was 12. But although I enjoyed the excitement and bustle of the city, I was always glad to be home for the weekend. Despite the persistent bombing raids over Berlin, the city had sustained little damage, and the rich cultural life of the capital was unchanged. Berliners were resilient and refused to let the war disrupt their daily lives. But I had seen another side to the war. For six months before starting my studies, I'd served with the Red Cross at the Bielitz Sanatorium just outside of Berlin, nursing horrifically injured soldiers from the front line. I'd never forget the soldier, little more than a boy, who'd lost half his cheek and jaw from a bullet shot. He'd undergone multiple surgeries in an effort to save what was left of his face, but he still couldn't talk afterwards and had to be fed through a tube in his nose. I knew he'd never kiss his mother again. And the signs in Berlin, banning Jewish people from cafes, restaurants and parks, from fully enjoying the city and all it had to offer, so common that they had become invisible to most, were constant reminders to me that the Third Reich was also at war with its own people. When the Nazis came to power in 1933, Berlin had been home to the country's largest Jewish community. 160,000 strong, about a third of Germany's entire Jewish population. After the pogroms of Kristallnacht in 1938, tens of thousands of Jewish people fled Germany, migrating to places like France, the Netherlands, Palestine, England, and North and South America. By 1941, over half had left Berlin, and we'd heard it was similar right across Germany. Those who remained, including Uncle Teddy, one of Tante Elia's beloved brothers and his family, were resettled in ghettos in German-occupied Poland to the east, Warsaw, Lotz, and Krakow, to name a few. No matter how benign the Nazi government was trying to make such a mass expulsion, it was clear Germany was getting rid of its remaining Jewish population any way it could. Uncle Teddy had smuggled out letters telling us of the horrible and cramped conditions in Lotz. The ghetto was surrounded by barbed wire and brick walls, the gates and perimeters monitored by armed police. Prominent quarantine signs were meant to isolate them further from the rest of the city, but became self-fulfilling prophecies when poor conditions within the ghettos led to outbreaks of disease. They were forced to work long hours in factories, making military uniforms or electrical equipment, 
their only payment small rations of food, barely enough to keep them alive. They were being left to die in their ghetto prisons. At first, we sent parcels of food, clothing, blankets, and money to him. But when we heard they hadn't arrived, we used an intermediary to smuggle small items into the ghetto from time to time. It was all we could do to help the deplorable situation he and his family were in. Those few Jewish people who remained in Berlin, only a small fraction, perhaps 10,000, were protected because of their level of skill and expertise, or, like Tante Elia and Leo, were protected by marriage. But I wondered for how much longer. I had begun to hate being in the city, at the heart of it all, the seat of the Nazi government, and I missed the river, the forests, the open spaces, and tranquility of life on the land, the welcoming smiles of the staff, the warm embraces from Tante Elia, Uncle George's updates about the farm, and Leo's dinnertime questions about my studies. A knock at the door broke my reverie, and I looked up, startled, from the list of names I had begun writing down. It was Ida, the housemaid. Frau Hecker, there's a letter for you. Thank you, Ida, said Tante Elia, frowning. It was strange to receive a letter so late in the day. I'll read it now while I finish my tea. The maid walked smartly across the timber floor, her steps becoming muffled on the Persian rug under the table. Elia took the letter and dismissed Ida, who already had her coat across her arm, ready to go home to the village for the evening. Do you want me to leave you in peace? I asked, noticing Tante Elia's frown deepening as she turned the letter over in her hands. No, of course not, she said, as if coming out of a daze. Keep working on the guest list while I read this. Then we can get back to planning your big day. She smiled, but I could see worry lurking in her eyes. I set back to work as she asked, but my heart wasn't really in it. My gaze darted across to her as she began to read the letter, her steaming cup of tea forgotten on the table. Suddenly, she put her hand to her mouth, as if to prevent a gasp escaping. Tante Elia, what's wrong? I put the fountain pen down. Her eyes were wide with fear as she glanced across to me. Susanna, can you tell Ida to find Uncle George and ask him to come to the parlour? Ida's gone home, I think, I said, already pushing my chair back to stand. I'll go and find him. Go quickly, I have to speak with him urgently. I paused for a moment, hugging her impulsively, her small frame trembling before I rushed out the door. Whatever was in that letter had shaken her. Although she was petite, Tante Elia commanded authority wherever she went. She had an inner strength, a core of steel that I suspected she developed when her family had fled Russia after the 1905 pogroms in Kiev, when she was the same age I had been when I lost my family. She had told Leo and me stories of being separated from her mother and brothers as they tried to flee after their house was attacked, then looted and vandalised. She was chased down the alleyways of the city by Cossacks on horseback, with the sounds of screams in her ears. She was finally reunited with her father, who had watched, horrified, as a mob destroyed his office, before racing away to warn his family of the impending danger. Only later did she learn that her mother had been crushed, trampled by a soldier's horse in the mayhem while trying to escape the rioting crowd. 
Mercifully, her brothers were swept away to safety by the sea of terrified people. The experience had left an indelible mark on Elia. Her father later moved them west to Berlin, a progressive city where they could live in safety and he could set up his legal practice once again. He was determined to embrace German ways and secure a footing for his children among educated Christian society where their Jewish heritage could pose no danger to them. Elia was sent to an expensive school where my mother took her under her wing. My mother was fascinated by Elia's Russian background and ancestry and was fiercely protective of her, teaching her to modulate her accent so that she spoke like a Berliner and introducing her to the world of the German aristocracy. This was how Elia met Uncle George, whose family were old friends of my mother's family. Tante Elia always told us that good Birkenhof had felt like home to her. Here she could be herself, a strange mixture of Russian, Jew, and German. It was a place where she could raise her own family in safety, surrounded by the close-knit community. She was always the first one to help those in need and stand up for people who had been treated unfairly. The loss of her own mother had made her compassionate and kind, and when my mother died, she made every effort to ensure I didn't suffer alone. But whatever was in the letter had disturbed this strong, indomitable woman. Uncle George was in his study. He didn't utter a word when I told him what had happened, only pressed his lips tightly together, pushed his chair back from the large walnut desk, and walked quickly to the parlour, where he closed the door firmly behind him. I knew better than to ask questions. Although we outwardly appeared a normal German family, we lived in constant uncertainty, at the whim of changing Nazi sympathies and policy. Uncle George's connections and status had kept Tante Elia's name off the register of the Reich Association of Jews, but we were never sure it was enough to keep her safe. He had close connections to powerful Nazis, due to his family's noble lineage and business dealings, securing large, long-term contracts with the Reichspost, Germany's postal system, and the Reichsbahn, the National Railways, for timber, milk, and agricultural produce. More importantly, Uncle George had trusted contacts in the Ministry of the Interior, which held all registrations and the 1939 census cards on Jewish heritage, and they had kept Tante Elia's details buried there. But we were well aware that the Reich Main Security Office, the RSHA, which oversaw the deportations of Jewish people from Germany with the might of the Gestapo behind it, could retrieve personal information at any time. We also lived with the constant fear that the Reich would invalidate marriages between German citizens and Jewish people. I pressed my ear to the door. I had to know what was happening. This letter just came, I heard Tante Elia say. It's finally happened. Her voice broke. I've been registered. Let me see. There was silence for a heartbeat or two, then the sound of Uncle George pacing around the room. After everything we've done, it must be Kaltenbrunner, the new chief of the RSHA. He's SS, supported by Himmler, and it's no secret he's a fanatical anti-Semite. I could hear the grim horror in Uncle George's voice. If he gets hold of those census documents... There's only so much your contacts can do. Even those highly placed Nazi officials can't help us anymore. Tante Ilya's voice shook. 
Uncle George had cultivated relationships within the upper ranks of the government and Wehrmacht, the German armed forces. I'd seen him give visiting officials gifts, and Leo had told me he also sent them baskets of luxury items from across Europe. Bottles of cognac or fresh meat, cheese and vegetables from our farm. He'd even taken to leasing out land and holiday cottages along the river to those wanting a more genteel lifestyle. All to remain a friend and asset to those who wielded power. I had no illusions about what Uncle George was doing. Social connections and the power that came with the upper class meant everything to the Nazis, and so far he'd been able to keep Tante Elia and Leo safe. Gut Birkenhoff ensured the local economy flourished, employing over half the village at one time or another. And the longer the war went on, the more valuable raw materials and food products became. The government couldn't afford to lose such a reliable supply. All this had kept Tante Elia protected and off the official register, even though her Jewish heritage was known to some of Uncle George's Nazi associates. It had kept me safe too. We'd heard stories of Aryan children being taken away from adoptive or even step-parents who were found to be Jewish. And it had protected Uncle George from the harassment meted out to Aryans married to Jewish people by Nazis and officials, as well as local people. But I could only imagine what his efforts had cost him both financially and personally. He hated the Nazis as much as Leo and I did. I had a deal with them. I heard Uncle George slam the table in frustration and anger. I know, and it's kept us safe this long, Tante Elia said. But it's official now. My worry is for you and Leopold. You'll be reviled as a traitor to Germany, and Leo will be recognised as a, a Mischling. I heard the catch in her voice. It was a terrible word, meaning mongrel or half-breed, like an animal. But you're both still legally protected. The register will, will reflect that you're in a lawful mixed marriage. Nothing will change. Uncle George could be stubborn at the best of times, but what if he was wrong? Listen to me, George. Everything's changed. My identity card will be stamped with a J, and I, I can't go out now without wearing the Star of David. Everyone will know what I am. Her voice was shaky. And what that now makes you and Leopold? Not in the village. Everyone knows and loves us. We're family. People already talk about why I have certain privileges, why I haven't been deported, even why you haven't divorced me. When it becomes public knowledge, there'll be no mercy from them. But they've known you for well over 20 years. You're the heart of this community. Uncle George's outrage told me volumes. He knew what Tante Elia was saying was true. It doesn't matter. The resentment's already there. Some of them are sick of seeing Nazis flock to our door and spending extravagant weekends on the river. It makes them nervous. With the Gestapo breathing down their necks, now I'll have no freedom. If I put a foot wrong, they'll make sure I get what they think I deserve. Tante Elia's voice cracked. It was no wonder. I knew she still had nightmares about Kristallnacht, when Uncle Teddy's Berlin law practice had been set alight, and his son Felix sent to Sachsenhausen, one of the earliest camps set up by the Nazis to hold political prisoners and dissidents. They'll come near you over my dead body! anguish and aggression in Uncle George's voice made my heart clench in fear. I swayed for a moment, clutching at the doorframe, then swallowed 
and brought myself back under control. I had to hear the rest. We have to get out while there's still a chance, said Uncle George. What chance? Nobody wanted us four years ago when the quotas were tightened. Now immigration's forbidden to Jewish people. We'll never get a visa. I'll try again. There must be a way. I'll go to the American embassy and speak to your brother in New York. I'll visit all the consulates if I have to, even the black market. Somebody will take us. My body shook at the desperation in his voice. I was 15 when they tried to sell the estate and leave for America. But Reich officials had denied our request, ironically because of the government contracts that protected our family. Uncle George had still been determined to escape somehow, even leaving the estate behind. But the mass exodus of Jewish people out of Germany meant countries like the United States had filled their quotas years in advance, and some countries had closed their doors altogether. Tante Elia's youngest brother and his family had managed to emigrate, but we had missed out. There was nowhere for us to go. Since then, Leo's life had become more restrictive. He had wanted, wanted to study agriculture, manage the estate, and follow in his father's footsteps, but proof of pedigree, including birth and marriage certificates of parents and grandparents, was required for university applications, and Leo was denied entry into agricultural college. Acceptance was at the discretion of the university rectors, and many did not want Mischlinger at their institution. Even Uncle George's appeals to his Nazi contacts came to nothing. Like all young men his age, Leo couldn't wait to serve his country and fulfil his duty as a patriotic German. But when he came of age for national labour service and conscription into the Wehrmacht, the law had just been revised to exclude half-Jews from the military. When all his friends and our neighbours were called up and we heard reports of injury on the front lines, the shame he carried only grew. Leo felt useless, but he'd encouraged me to serve with the Red Cross at Bielitz to complete my own Reich labour service, a duty all young citizens were obliged to carry out. I couldn't stand by and do nothing, and perhaps it would even help our family by showing I was a patriotic German. Now, everything seemed more precarious, and the danger was even closer to home. I didn't need to hear any more. I stumbled down the corridor, desperate for fresh air, thoughts jumbling in my mind. I felt so helpless, but I couldn't bear the thought of those I loved being persecuted, ripped away to the squalid ghetto prisons. I found Leo at the stables, silhouetted against the puddle of yellow light from the open door, which cast a cheery glow into the dull and fading afternoon. I'll talk to you tomorrow, I heard him say to a stable hand his voice muffled by the heaviness in the air. It had begun snowing again, the sky low and leaden, as though threatening to suffocate us. Leo, I called out, the sound falling flat, cocooned by the drifts of powdery white. What are you doing out here, Susie? It's too cold. Come on, let's go inside. He reached my side and threaded his arm through mine. Aren't you supposed to be organising your party with Mutti? I leaned against him, as much for warmth as for support. In my haste, I'd forgotten my coat and gloves, and my hands were nearly numb with cold. We were, I murmured, but then I began to shiver with cold and fear. Tell me inside. He propelled me forward, along the path back to the house, and refused to listen to a word until he had me rugged up in a blanket at the kitchen table, 
the rare indulgence of a hot chocolate in my hands. The staff had retired for the evening, and it was Frau Krause's night off. She was the cook and head of the household staff. She had been with Uncle George and Tante Elia for decades, but rather than live on the estate after the Great War, when she was widowed, she'd insisted on remaining in her own home in the village. After finding love again and remarrying, she now shared her home with Hans, our head forester. She'd left dinner gently simmering on the stove, and the blast of warmth and smells of meaty broth and onions made me feel a little safer, like being wrapped in a mother's comforting embrace. I glanced at Leo sitting across from me, waiting for me to tell him what was wrong. He was only a few years older than me, but it still came as a shock to realise how he'd changed in the last few years. The last vestiges of childhood had left him, and he was a man now, although his dark, wavy hair still fell into his eyes, as it had always done. He was straight-backed, tall and athletic like his father, and strong from the work on the estate, felling trees, chopping wood, baling hay, fixing machinery, or carting milk. We'd lost some workers over the last year to old age, infirmity, and the Wehrmacht, so Leo was determined to make himself as useful as possible. His frustration at not being eligible for national service or the army made him work harder than ever. So are you going to tell me what's bothering you? I have all night, he said, folding his arms and leaning back in his chair. I took a deep breath and told him everything I'd heard. I'm scared, Leo, I whispered when I had finished. If anything happened to your mother or you... I realised I was still cradling the warm cup, half full, in my hands, and I put it on the table, unable to finish. Don't worry, Susie. Barty will do everything to keep Mutti safe, and I'm in no danger. He reached across the table and squeezed my hand. The law still protects her while she's married to Vati. I'm sure it's all just a formality, and life will go on the same as it always has. I nodded. I felt relieved that I'd shared my concerns with him, but I could see the worry in his eyes, even as he tried to reassure me. Uncle George would see to their protection as he always had, and Leo would make sure his father's plans were carried out, but this was serious. Our world had shifted abruptly on its axis with the arrival of that letter. But at least we had each other to lean on, just as we had through all the previous crises our family had endured. I should get dinner. It's the last thing your mother would feel like doing right now. I stood from the table and turned towards the stove. Leo's chair scraped across the floor as I ladled soup into a waiting tureen. They'll need us both tonight, he said. Here, let me help. I nodded, feeling tears well in my eyes. It will be fine. Leo put his arms around me and kissed the top of my head. He smelled of wood chips and the clean sweat of hard work, and I hugged him fiercely, as though it would keep him safe forever. I wondered if he could still read my thoughts as he had when we were younger. He stroked my cheek, then drew away gently, and heat flushed my cheeks. I'll take the soup for you, it's heavy, he said, unable to look me in the eye. I'll be there in a minute. I muttered, thrusting the terrine into his hands. Don't be long, he called over his shoulder as he left the kitchen. I stared after him for a moment and realised that I was shaking. The events of the afternoon had been a terrible shock. The future was unpredictable and uncertain, 
but a future without Leo was unthinkable. Leo meant everything to me. He was the love of my life. Well, there you go. War, drama, romance. If you can't wait to read more, Letters from Berlin by Tanya Blanchard is out now with Simon & Schuster. Now, I did mention before that Tanya is one of our graduates, having completed a few of our creative writing courses. Before becoming a best-selling author, yes, 100,000 books, remember, Tanya was a physiotherapist and stay-at-home mum, a world away from her new life as a full-time writer. Have a listen to how Tanya changed her life by taking our courses. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre and our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1. This course is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Have a listen to Tanya Blanchard. It was really important for me to become a published author, particularly because of this story that I've written, The Girl from Munich. It's a story really close to my heart. It's a story of my German grandmother and growing up during World War II and what happened to her. So the fact that I was published with her story, first and foremost, is something very exciting and very meaningful to me. The course has had such an impact on my life and on my writing, on my life, because I've always dreamed of one day becoming published and never imagined it was possible. But after doing the course, I realised that it was something that was definitely attainable and I was able to work towards that. As far as my writing goes, it improved my writing dramatically. It gave me so much more confidence that I could write. I had the skills behind me to do it now and that meant that I could work faster and harder and and just get the work done. And I've got so many more ideas of things that I can do now and I just can't wait to, to write more. I write full time now. It's absolutely amazing that I'm able to do that. I would absolutely recommend one of the courses to anyone. If you're a writer or aspiring writer, go and do it. I wouldn't be sitting here without these courses that I've done. The skills that I've learnt have helped me along my journey and I'm now sitting here with a published book in my hands and I never thought that this was possible and it's because of these courses. Take it from me, go and do it, you won't regret it. If you'd like to find out more, go to writerscentre.com.au slash creative writing. So remember, we also spoke with Tanya back in episode 278 of So You Want to Be a Writer, and you can read more about her story on our blog. Just go to our blog at writercentercomau slash blog and search for Tanya Blanchard. Thanks for listening to Story Sessions of So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find more details about the podcast and a wealth of writing resources at writercentercomau This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre. Connect with us on social media at writercentreau, on Twitter and Instagram, and join our free podcast listener community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. It's free to join. We'd love to have you in there. We'll be back with our regular programming in our next episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news. 